fashion forecasting has become a crowded market of late, in part because of the changing technologies that have become available in the past decade or so, and in part because it's a lucrative market, especially for tech-savvy folk who are capable of putting together a solid back-end of services for fashion and fashion-related companies, and for fashionistas who want to get out of the making-of-clothing side of things and into the B2B side, selling services, selling panning equipment to the gold miners, rather than mining for gold themselves, essentially. Fashion forecasting is a business with three main components. First, they capture data. Second, they crunch that data. And third, they make that data available in useful ways. To capture data... They employ and hire tens of thousands of people to go out into the world and photograph fashion and style as it happens in real life, and in some cases to interview the people wearing the clothing they photograph. These forecasters attend conferences and music festivals, fashion runways and red carpets. They walk the streets of New York City and Paris to see what people are wearing. Their photos and any supplementary information they gather is then added to a database of other photos and information, and tagged with metadata, making it organizable and searchable. In recent years, this information is also often combined with the same types of photos that are instead collected from social media, especially networks like Instagram, which allows forecasters to find and capture a lot of the same information, but from wherever they happen to be, rather than out on the street or at a festival. This is where the crunching of that data comes into play. Now that all these photos from around the world organized by demographics and geographic location and type and time period and color and all kinds of other identifying information is available, it's a relatively simple matter to look at the big picture and make predictions about where things are going next. Some of this involves historical precedents. Some involves correlations with other industries and cultural movements. And some is just gut feeling or personal taste. From there, these forecasting companies make this information available in interesting and useful ways. Some will produce free reports that are put out into the world to garner PR, to show what they can do, but also to expand their reach into other industries, to gain new clients perhaps. But most of this information is leveraged for their clients. They take what they've learned about the evolution of denim and where it seems to be going, and they package that information and those photos together for the denim company that pays them to do so. And that packaging is done alongside the presentation of the raw information, the interviews and the photos themselves, which are often available to their clients as a massive searchable database. So these forecasters are coming up with their own sums, but they're also showing their work, allowing their clients to come to their own conclusions using their own formulas, if they so desire. WGSN is a trend forecasting company that focuses on fashion, and by all indicators, they're one of the biggest and most influential companies in this space. But I say that they seem to be one of the biggest players, not that they are, because it's really difficult to tell, as these companies are notoriously close-mouthed about their product and their clients. 
in part because they want to keep their intellectual property, all of these predictions and the information derived from them, secret. And in part because some of their clients don't want to be seen as being brands that require outside help to know what's going to be in and what's not. They want to be perceived as brands that have their finger on the pulse of style, not as brands that have to hire people who do. So a lot of that information is kept secret. We do know, however, that WGSN and many other companies provide additional services above and beyond mere predictions, and even beyond the library of photos and interviews that I mentioned a moment ago. Among these additional services is a library of tens of thousands of clothing and accessory templates. And these templates represent everything from t-shirts to hoodies to little black dresses and purses. Their clients can take these templates, add a little detail here, a logo there, maybe change the pocket, and boom, new product. This service and others like it make the massive price tag on WGSN services thousands to tens of thousands of dollars a year. It makes the price seem a little more reasonable, as it makes a lot of their clients work a hell of a lot simpler and a lot more straightforward. It also arguably makes the world of fashion a lot more copycatish and predictable, since a lot of the companies are starting from these same templates. But it's also, at the same time, allowed more small players to enter the industry, since they have this powerful platform and these resources to start from, which reduces their initial overhead substantially. WGSN isn't the only operator in this space, not by a long shot. Other companies like Stylus and F-Trend provide many of the same services, customized predictions, databases of photos, libraries of templates. Other companies operating in this space are free rather than crazy expensive, and instead of having everything behind closed doors, they provide photo databases and blog-style prediction essays to anyone who wants them, often using typical blogging business models to help fund these services, advertisements, sponsors, affiliates, and the like. And again, networks like Instagram and the prevalence of smartphones with cameras has made entering this field, even as an individual, a million times more feasible than it would have been a few years ago. Even if you can't afford to travel to a music festival to take your own style shots, you can still peruse Instagram for photos taken at the event from home, and you can then draw your own conclusions and present your own predictions to the world using free online software and social networks. Some predictions in this space are short-term, aiming to identify impending moves within the market that will take place within the next few months, and in some cases even predicting fads like the rainbow bagel and the hipster pink and rose gold colors that suddenly showed up on everything a few years ago. Other predictions aim for a longer time horizon, a year or two in the future generally, which is a time frame that is useful for companies that are looking to sort out their catalog moving forward, ensuring they have the right designs, the right relationships with producers of the right materials, the right marketing collateral that will strike the proper tone and hit the right audience, and so on, all prepared ahead of time. These predictions, by the way, make use of demographic information, like age and location, but also so-called psychographic information, like values and cultural norms. One of the trend forecasters I checked out while researching for this episode provided a free report called The Sober Generation, 
which was filled with information about a broad swath of younger demographics that share the psychographic profile of drinking a lot less than previous generations. The idea was that because these young people drink less alcohol, marketing messages will need to change in order to catch their eye. So here's a bundle of data and analysis by our company that might help you do that. And that illustrates something important here. Even within the highly specialized world of fashion forecasting, you can't just focus on fashion to make these types of predictions. Yes, forecasters take a lot of photos of people wearing different types of clothing, and they assess industry-specific trends, but they also spend a lot of time thinking about transportation, and education, and food. One major success story for a company called Stylus, which was founded by the original founder of WGSN, by the way, after he sold his company in the 90s, was predicting the emergence of the athleisure trend which is defined by things like yoga pants and fitted sweatpants and stretchy fabrics and comfortable t-shirts that don't look cheap and broadly things that are inspired by or even have fitness clothing functionality, but which don't necessarily make you look like you just left the gym. This prediction was made in part by recognizing that more and more people were working, at least part of the time, from home. Further, people were spending more time at home during their off hours as well, due to the preponderance of entertainment options that had become available that did not require an individual to go anywhere, to leave their home, alongside the increase in widely available cheap high-speed internet, which allows all of us to access more of these options, more casually and regularly, to order more things, to see things on demand, to stream movies, things like that. The thought process here is that more time spent at home, less time spent in formal settings out in public. And when we go into public, it will be more as kind of a reconnaissance to pick up groceries or to grab a coffee than to stay out in public all day away from home, as might have been the case previously, where the office would have been our main home base from which we operated throughout the day. This realization combined with data showing that people who have traditionally worked from home will typically orient themselves toward more comfortable clothing, led to this prediction about the emergence and expansion of the athleisure subgenre of clothing, which was a prediction that very much came true. Similar predictions are made about the food industry. If you are a company that sells prepackaged meats and breakfast cereals, you might become a client of one or more of this type of company to keep tabs on public interest in these products and to ascertain and to try to prophesize how tastes are changing over time. This information might help you decide to make cereals produced from organic ingredients with less processed sugar, and to shift away from meats with antibiotics and hormones that have been introduced during the production process. It may, eventually, convince you to shift away from meat almost entirely, or to package and promote it differently, or to different markets. It may also convince you, because more people are working from home, that it may be prudent to invest in a food delivery service that helps customers get your products delivered to their door without them having to leave their home to pick it up. I am a huge fan of reports produced by companies like PSFK, which is a technology-largely-focused forecaster, 
and from companies like IDEO, which is a little bit different in that it designs products as well, rather than just making predictions. But the reports from both of these companies about the future of technology tend to be enlightening and expansive in terms of the possible impact of the changes that they describe. But fashion, food, and technology are not the only spaces in which forecasting is both valuable and lucrative. There's a company called Pantone that, back when I was in design school many years ago, was mostly only known to those of us who were designers. They are famous for their booklets full of color swatches, which assigns codes to very specific blends of color, very specific hues, which can then be used to get those hues exactly as you want them, to get the color on your computer screen to print perfectly as you intended when they are converted from pixels on a screen into actual ink in a magazine or in the product packaging that you're designing. Today, though, Pantone has expanded their brand reach and become known for everything from co-branded furniture to co-branded clothing. They've also established their own color forecasting industry, which is a subsection of many other industries through which they consult with fashion companies to help them decide which colors will be hot next year in the world of shoes. But they also consult with tech companies to help them decide what specific shade of off-white they should be using on their smartphone and which very specific shade of gray they should use on their Bluetooth speaker two years from now. Pantone's power here, and arguably the power of many of these forecasters, stems from their ability to define things, to utilize existing labels, existing categories, existing stratifications of society and culture and color space and types of cloth and other materials that are cut and stitched and slung onto human bodies in a variety of ways. They utilize the words we use to describe these things already to great effect. They use them to convey information about these things, but also about the people that they are watching. They're not making predictions about fashion or color palettes so much as about people and what colors and clothing those people will be interested in, what they will find appealing, and why. But on top of that, they also create new definitions. New labels, new categories, new stratifications. They regularly come out with new colors complete with instructions on how to blend them, and each of these colors have labels to identify them from every other color in existence. There is power in owning that system of labels and having a reputation that allows you to be a well-respected, sought-out definer of things. Now, there's an interesting sub-discussion to be had here about the bottom-up and top-down aspect of these interconnecting forecasting fields. How much of what happens in the fashion world, for instance, is determined by what these forecasters predict, which then leads fashion companies to make those predicted types of clothes to be prepared for that forecasted future, which then makes that future happen, becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. How much of what gets sold at clothing stores is determined by what templates are available in these fashion forecasting libraries and how much is the color palette of next year determined by the gut feeling of a particularly influential Pantone employee? I discussed this a bit in a previous episode from last year entitled Influence Marketing, but in this episode, I want to focus on segmentation and categorization, and specifically, the labels without which this entire industry would not exist. 
designations that arguably both inform us, making us more knowledgeable about the world in broad ways, but also confuse us, making us at times incredibly ignorant and misinformed, even as we feel more knowledgeable and more informed about the way things are. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I want to start with today comes from the New York Times, and it's entitled, Are You 21 to 37? You Might Be a Millennial. This piece is about, you guessed it, millennials. But more specifically, it's about a recent Pew Research Center report about millennials, which summarizes Pew's findings over the past decade, and which, particularly relevant to the title of this New York Times piece, finds that the average perception of what ages fall under this header is a little bit different from what many scholars on the subject of generational divides have been saying thus far. Specifically, Pew found that folks they surveyed considered those who were born between the years 1981 and 1996 to be millennials. The U.S. Census Bureau, on the other hand, has designated 1982 and 2000 as the cutoff years for this generation. I've also seen 1980 and 2000 set as the cutoff years to be a millennial in at least a half dozen articles in the last year or so. This new chunk of data from Pew Research is important for a few reasons. First, it demonstrates that generational definitions are wobbly things. We kind of sort of know what we're talking about when we throw these terms around, but the labels are not concrete enough to ensure that we are absolutely discussing the same age ranges when we use generational terms in our conversations or even our news reporting. Second, it shows that the work that's being produced on this topic thus far may be pulling information from sources that are using different definitions for the term millennial. I'm willing to bet that if you asked 20 people their definition for the term, you'd get at least a handful of different answers, maybe more than a handful. And that also seems to be the case for the scholarly aspects of this conversation. So that piece that you just read about millennials earlier today may not be referring to exactly the same group of people as that other piece about millennials that you read yesterday. And third, it indicates that as we conduct more formal research into this topic, we will likely be capable of being more precise with our terminology. It may not seem like a big difference, being born in 1980 or being born in 1982, but a lot can happen in two years. And a lot of norms can shift in that period of time. The age at which you get your first smartphone, or the age at which you first become aware that there are terrible things happening in the world, that can have implications for how a person views the world and what behaviors define a person's average peer group. So it's a good thing, I would argue, that we're taking the time to recognize that this term is still blurry around the edges. And that serious, well-regarded entities like Pew are making an effort to help clarify what we're talking about when we discuss such things. But one question I want to ask up front here regarding our use of generational titles more broadly, but also the term millennial in particular, is this. 
Who cares? What does it matter? What we call these groups. Why does it matter that there are a million editorials talking shit about people who occupy some loosely defined age range? What does it matter how we categorize, or if we categorize, or if we can agree on the same categorization for different segments of the population, whether we're defining them by age or location or their cultural or personal practices or whatever else? Who cares how we label things and how those labels are utilized? This is, I think, a very valid set of questions. And although a few quick off-the-cuff answers might come to mind, it's annoying when old people make assumptions about young people, for instance, or vice versa, when young punks assume things about their elders who just happen to have been born within a certain decade. But there's actually a deeper significance, I would argue, to these categorizations. Before I dive into that deeper significance, though, let's take a moment to address the invention of the term millennial, because this term came of age in a very different cultural and media ecosystem than any prior generational label, including the one that immediately preceded millennials, Generation X. The group that is today most frequently referred to as millennials, were for a long time called Generation Y, a term that the magazine Advertising Age coined in 1993, and which the former digital director of Advertising Age told NPR in 2014 was only intended as a placeholder until we knew more about this group and could come up with a more descriptive label. All they really had to go on at that moment was the assumption that due to the changing world, the emergence of the mainstream computer industry, the very recent dawn of the not-yet-mainstream internet, the fall of the Soviet Union, things like that, they figured there would be a cutoff point for Generation X, somewhere in there, since so much of what defined Gen X, shifting social values, a dramatic increase in divorce rates, the emergence of cable TV culture, and more specifically, MTV music culture, the mainstream adoption of certain entrepreneurial tendencies, but also a degree of political cynicism, that seemed to be coming to an end, or at least it seemed to be shifting in meaningful ways. Two authors, William Strauss and Neil Howey, are most widely credited for coining the term millennial to refer to this new group. In 1987, they made predictions about the age demographic that was born in 1982, and which, at the time, was entering preschool, but which would eventually become the high school class of the year 2000. These authors published multiple books on this subject, including one called Generations, The History of America's Future, 1584 to 2069, and Millennials Rising, the Next Great Generation, the first of which was published in 1991 and the latter of which came out in the year 2000. The term millennial didn't really catch on at first, and there were a variety of other options being tossed around in the media to describe this group. For a while, it looked like some reference to the baby boomers would win out, since this generation was predominantly populated by the children of baby boomers and were also part of a new baby boom, which is to say a lot more people having babies than on average, but only for a limited period of time. So for a while, we had the echo boomers and the new boomers 
though these labels were soon replaced by Generation Me, which was coined by Jean Twenge, a psychologist who thought that this demographic was defined primarily by their focus on themselves. She published a book in 2006 called Generation Me, Why Today's Young Americans Are More Confident, Assertive, Entitled, and More Miserable Than Ever Before. In 2013, this same term was used by Time Magazine for a cover story entitled Millennials, the Me, Me, Me Generation. Other notable labels that popped up before being relegated to the filing cabinet of categorizational trends that didn't catch on include Generation 9-11, Generation We, The Global Generation, Generation Next, which sounds kind of like a flavor of Pepsi to me, and the Net Generation. All of these labels, you may have noticed, home in on some particular trait, real or imagined, that the coiners of the terms deemed to be not just important, but the most important trait, presumably held by the vast majority of tens of millions of people who, in this case, for most of these stories and labels, lived within the United States, but who also lead very different lives because of their geographies, their economic situations, their cultural backgrounds, their religions, and because of everything else that makes a person and their circumstances unique. I'll get more into that in a bit, but what's important to note here is that although the term millennial seems to have stuck, at least for the moment, this term was not at all destined to win out over all the others. And the meaning with which we've imbued the term varies greatly, depending on who you talk to. So how do words like millennial get their meaning? If you're like me, you've probably had your fill of those millennials are ruining this and millennials have killed that stories. I feel like I had my fill of those two or three years ago. These headlines seem calculated to inspire outrage and debate. And as is often the case, the content of the actual articles are generally much more moderate and tame and less accusatory. Nonetheless, there is a financial incentive for news and news-adjacent entities that pay their bills through advertisements and exposure to get all those rage clicks, even if it means fluffing up a tame piece about how young people are drinking less than prior generations, by using the headline, Millennials are killing the whiskey industry. Beyond the clickbait causes, though, there's also a collection of industries predicated on perceived expertise about these sorts of things some of which include fashion and tech prognosticators, like we talked about in the intro, and some of which are made up of people who want to write a book and jump into the speaking circuit with a newfound career propped up by their confidently shared insights about this new, young, consumeristically desirable age demographic. Some of these people, of course, actually have done tons of research on the subject and have written legit papers and done real work to further their understanding about what societal and other changes we can expect as a consequence of the variables that are influencing the development of young people today. Others, though, are merely using a collection of keywords to amp up their LinkedIn profiles, hoping to fuel a vertical professional leap by saying critical and presumptive things about one group to another group that hopes to profit off of them. And that second group itself typically does not include any decision-making members from the first group. So they are 
vulnerable to this type of salesmanship. In other words, there is a cottage industry of people who will confidently say things about millennials to non-millennials for money. And this cottage industry exists because the older generation will always be scrambling to understand the younger generation, mostly, at least under the current global economic paradigm, so they can sell them things. This desire to understand this seemingly alien new batch of young people, though, is a fact of life, and has been consistently throughout the ages. It's just taken on a new, frantic pace today, because so has everything else. Communication is more frantic. The way we consume information and news is faster paced. Our ability to gain exposure and talk nonsense, but also to share valuable real data, has been amplified to a huge degree. So although there were also cottage industries of consultants and sociologists explaining Generation X to the older half of the baby boomer generation and to the silent generation, the two groups that preceded Gen X, and which therefore struggled to understand them, found them confounding and frustrating, and assumed that everything good about society would be destroyed by them. Again, pretty much the same as every generation for which we have documentation. Today, that conversation takes place via different mediums, on different platforms, and supported by slightly different business models. One more amplification factor that applies to the term millennial but not so much to past generational monikers, is the preponderance of filter bubbles and echo chambers that are incentivized and fueled by the algorithms that pervade every aspect of modern life. But most importantly, for this conversation, also help determine what we see online. If you get your news on the internet, and increasingly any other medium, as TV and radio and newspaper commentators often decide what to publish, at least in part, by keeping tabs on what's trending online, what you see is determined in large part based on algorithms. These code clusters are meant ostensibly to show us better stuff, more valuable stuff, but better and valuable are relative terms, and in many cases they refer to things that keep us quote-unquote engaging with content in ways that are meaningful to algorithms. So sharing and liking and commenting, and this content is more valuable in ways that are relevant to the quantification methods of ad-supported networks like Facebook and Twitter, meaning they keep you online, they keep you clicking, they keep you checking out content within their orbit, stuff that they can take a click-through commission on. All of this adds up to a situation in which articles that stir up generational animosity and confrontation are more likely to stay in the air around us, swirling and maintaining seeming relevance, even if that relevance is purely emergent from these foundational concerns of clicks and ad revenue, rather than true non-business-related meaning. The labels and supposed meaning of the labels are not actually as concrete and important as reported, but they seem to be because folks are making money by making them seem to be. A lot of this sort of thing, what we're trying to figure out with the millennial generation, is actually easier to do in retrospect, though there are problems there too, as we tend to paint these older groups in the annals of history as complete 80-year-old human beings, and all the detail that entails. We then compare the 
fully lived lives of these older groups to the lives of 20-year-olds who first are 20 and therefore have not had the chance to fully come into their adult selves quite yet, but who are also operating in ways our contemporary methods of data collection cannot quite fathom. We have all kinds of information, including what would seem to be complete life stories from members of the Lost Generation, which came of age during World War I, and the GI Generation, also called the Greatest Generation, which lived their young adult lives under the shadow of World War II, and the Silent Generation, which was born around World War II and which therefore grew up in the post-World War era. And even the baby boomers who are shaping the world today more than perhaps any other group and on whom we therefore have a great deal of information. Right now, though, the millennial generation is still figuring itself out. We don't know what contemporary variables are shaping it right now, today. If you watch the day-to-day news, it's easy to assume that the conflict over gun rights here in the U.S., the perceived conflicts that we have with Russia and North Korea, the bizarre reality of modern politics, the push-pull between leftist and rightist extremes when it comes to just about everything, the preponderance of always-on, constantly evolving new technologies that, in many ways, eliminate borders, but which, in other ways, emphasize those delineations more than ever before. It's easy to assume that any or all of these things will determine how millennials behave in their 40s and 50s and 60s and onward, but it's impossible to know. Something else could happen that becomes a much more dramatic, important shaping agent. Some or all of these things could fade into the background, replaced by some new horribleness or some new wonderful development that changes everything. As more fully lived information becomes available, millennials could be redefined as the World War III generation, or the de-weaponization generation, or the borderless generation, or the filter bubble generation. We can't possibly know. So right now, the label millennial is steeped in uncertainty and doubt. It's an incomplete recipe. We don't know what the outcome is going to be. And of course, this uncertainty just pours fuel on the flame of speculation because it means that all those people who are currently speculating today cannot be wrong. Not yet, anyway. Everything is so in flux that tomorrow's realities will provide them with just as much fodder as today's brazen headlines based on wild, often ill-supported generalizations. And that brings me to another point. Most of these labels, generational labels, but also labels used by marketers and brands, to target supposed consumer groups. They're often about as accurate as horoscopes or Myers-Briggs designations, which is to say that so long as they can phrase their descriptions so that they're about 50 to 70% correct for absolutely everyone, they're in pretty good shape. Those who are told a particular label applies to them will typically focus on that stuff that seems to apply and ignore all the stuff that doesn't apply or reframe their personal situation so that the descriptors seem to apply, even if just a little, we have a bias toward categorization, and particularly self-categorization, which is why it's so much fun to figure out which Harry Potter house we'd be in, which star sign we are, and which generational label applies to us. Even if we know there's no scientific backing to these things, even if we know 
rationally that there's someone out there who almost certainly is not a wizard writing these horoscopes, and that there are not only 16 types of people in the world, and that the term millennial applies to tens of millions of people who cannot possibly all share the same set of traits, it's still viscerally satisfying to be told things about ourselves, to get our palms read and to get our Myers-Briggs tests graded, to be able to say, oh wow, I'm such a Scorpio, or to be able to say, you're such a typical Hufflepuff. It feels good to take control of the world in this way because it makes us feel that we understand it, that we don't need to worry about it so much, that our environment is not a confusing mishmash of random happenstance, but rather something that we can identify and categorize and put into boxes and store in well-labeled drawers inside neatly arranged cabinets. It's important to recognize, though, that demography is not destiny. And a lot of the suppositions we make about the variables that would seem to be influential on groups of people will be incorrect to some degree or another when it comes to that whole group, but especially to individuals who are supposedly part of that group. It's logical to assume that an age demographic that's consuming less alcohol will purchase fewer alcoholic products. That's as close to a causal relationship as you can get in this space, I think. But to take that additional leap of logic and say, this age demographic is drinking less, therefore, they will probably spend more money on gym memberships and fitness equipment. That could turn out to be right, but it could also turn out to be complete BS. There are a lot of reasons not to drink. Not all of them are health and fitness related. Further, it may be that other things, other variables, change the way this age group chooses to work out, to stay fit, to get healthy. And those new dynamics could involve fewer pieces of fitness equipment and less specialized workout clothing. The more specific the assumption, then, unless it's tied directly to a very measurable piece of data, the more likely that assumption will be incorrect or incomplete. A lot of what we quote-unquote know about millennials at this point falls into this category. Look around at the suppositions being made, and it's remarkable just how ill-supported many of these claims are. And that's not even including the ones that are clearly basis or frightened or sometimes just prejudiced pot shots taken by older generations who are in positions that allow them to seem credible without actually needing to know anything about what they're discussing. Despite the lack of scientific rigor in this space, though, these labels, the defining of these categories, repeatedly and in public, and in ways that seem to be serious even when they're not, that can have an effect on people. Just as we tend to reframe ourselves and our actions to fit within a category when enough of what defines that category seems to fit us, like with horoscopes or Harry Potter houses, we will often reframe our actions to fit within those general designations as well. We will see what we do through the lens of this self-labeling. So if you're told that you're part of Generation X, you may start to see some of your actions as faded because of when you were born. All of these variables typically attributed to the shaping of Generation X because of when you were born. Because of all the variables that are typically attributed to the shaping of the Gen X generation, rather than as something that you just decided to do, rather than something that was logical based on your own independent attributes. If you are told, similarly, that you are a millennial, that could also shape how you perceive yourself, 
and the world and your place in the world. It shapes how others see you in a very real way, too. And it can affect everything from your job prospects and what responsibilities you're given to how you perceive the economic realities into which you've been born. None of which is to say that all of these supposed traits will be incorrect. There are no doubt some real truths buried in these labels, at least for some people in some regions who grew up in circumstances that placed them neatly inside some of these boxes. But remember that things like technology and economics and social shifts and important events, like terrorist attacks and hotly contested presidential elections, these are not at all universal. Although we are tempted to slap the millennial label on young people around the world, most of the traits inherent in that term apply most commonly, as far as we can tell at least, to those of a particular age range living within the United States, and perhaps also places like Canada and some European nations. There are completely separate sets of designators used for the same age demographic in China, in Peru, in parts of Southeast Asia. Similarly, the variables that have most closely shaped my life, my personality, are the consequences of having been born in 1985 and having grown up middle-class, white, straight, male in the Midwest of the United States. The year in which I was born then does determine in some ways which technologies and consequent methods of communication and entertainment I have available. But so too does my economic situation, or did my childhood economic situation. I had a Nintendo when I was a kid, but I didn't get one as quickly as the wealthy family a few neighborhoods over, and the less well-off family a few neighborhoods in the other direction maybe never had one, or didn't get one until the next generation of gaming console had already been released. And that may seem like a small thing, and maybe it is, but it also can be the type of thing that can shape one's perception of the world. We would perhaps, then, be better served to include such designations in our demographic labels, since we seem to find these methods of categorization so tantalizing. The only way to really encompass everything that makes up a person is to refer to ourselves as individuals, of course, but including the region, the age, the economic situation, gender, race, sexual identity, and a slew of other attributes, that could help us get more granular with these definitions. Though, of course, it would also make clickbait headlines a lot more difficult to write, and our list of labels of categories for each new birth year-based generation would be cumbersome to the point of non-utility, most likely. These labels would probably have to be quite long in terms of characters, if nothing else. But, of course, that could be a feature as well as a bug, I suppose. Lumping things together into groups can be valuable in that it helps us identify broad trends and can allow us to organize the world in a way that, optimally, allows us to then dig deeper into some specific subcategory, having established that initial very broad category. We may not learn everything there is to know about history as a category of study that is a very broad category, but the history of a specific group living within a specific region, or the history of a specific person, that interest could emerge from that primary broader interest in the general concept of history. So in that same way, broad categories like millennials 
could give us a starting point to explore more nuanced aspects of certain time periods and the people who lived during those time periods and experienced them from a certain perspective. But this same penchant for categorization can also cause us to ignore the differences between people and groups of people and can make us feel that we know more than we do. If I research history as a broad field of study, I might then feel that I'm qualified to tell you about your ancestors, despite your family having come from an unusual region with practices and mores that do not fit neatly into the average or mean behaviors that I learned about elsewhere with my broad superficial exploration. I may, because I've learned a lot about history broadly, feel qualified to speak about them because I know a whole lot about a lot of different things in history. But that will not mean that I am qualified to speak about them. My perception of what I know will not align with the reality of what I know. One more point that I want to make about this type of categorization is that these labels can be used to unify, but they can also be used to exclude and divide. Egypt was arguably the first culture to build a civilization predicated on a shared set of cultural traits. The people who lived thereabouts, as the Egyptian culture was developing, they were not genetically racially related, especially at first, but from the get-go, they did organize around the loose conception of being Egyptian, which meant they shared certain traits, both religious and secular, and how they organized their cities and towns, how they thought about the afterlife, how they socialized and stratified society. This allowed them to develop what seems to have been something of a golden age, very early on in human history, during which they demonstrated some amazing cultural accomplishments alongside their engineering feats and scholarly pursuits. That very same tactic, of course, has also been used to divide rather than to bring together. The term Aryan, for instance, was weaponized by the Nazis in an attempt to create an in-group that did not exist before, and to do so, they bastardized a term that actually meant something completely different, and which was invented by a guy who would not have appreciated its appropriation by Hitler and his ilk. The original context for the word Aryan actually comes from a 6th century BC inscription, which uses the term to refer to a group of people that we would today call Iranians. This term was then utilized by various groups around Europe and Asia throughout the generations until the 19th century, when a group of physical anthropologists began to use it to define a category of human lineage. At this time, a man named Frederick Max Mueller, a German who helped found both the field of Indian studies and the field of comparative religion, defined the Aryan race as a group who lived roughly in the Eurasian steppes and which spread over to Europe and to Russia and throughout parts of the modern-day Middle East and Western Asia. At this time, though, the word race had no genetic implications. He wasn't making a statement about biological lineage or even skin color. The term was used in his field at this time to refer to tribes of people or ethnic groups that shared similar practices, much like the Egyptians that I just mentioned. Unfortunately, shortly after Mueller's time, there were new fields of what we would today call pseudoscience, but which at the time was called theosophy, 
which was generally paid the same credence as actual science. And theosophy stated that there were different breeds, for lack of a better term, of humans. And depending on who you asked, there were anywhere from three to seven different types of human, all of which were essentially different species, with the Aryans being one group, and the Mongoloids being another, and the Negroids being another. And these labels were used to identify different groups of people who were bunched together into these made-up categories around the world. The implication here, and one that Mueller completely disagreed with, he argued against this term being used in this way, was that the Aryans were biologically superior to all these other groups. That God, perhaps, had created them as a superior race to rule over the other races. Because just look at how well they were doing, during this time period at least, compared to these other, in their mind, savage and backward, quote-unquote, breeds of human around the world. Now, knowing that, it shouldn't be too difficult to see how this relatively short-lived idea was rediscovered and reborn under the Nazis to justify, on a biological pseudoscientific level, the elimination of races they didn't consider to be pure and superior like them. And it's unfortunate that this other historical context is often left out of that particular discussion because part of this story, of this new definition of Aryans, which took on this particular meaning in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, was that, and I'm not joking here, the Aryans were a race that fled the island of Atlantis before it sunk, which resulted in them being stranded with all these other subhuman groups rather than being on their own special island, which was far superior to the rest of the world in every way. If you want to learn more about that particular thread of nuttiness, I will link to some interesting reads on the subject of theosophy, which again is the movement that spawned that reinterpretation of the Aryans as genetically superior refugees from Atlantis, and the idea of so-called root races, which is the mystical theory about how humanity came into being invented by a woman named Helena Blavatsky and a man named Henry Olcott as part of a cult that they founded that blatantly ripped off aspects of a Hindu separatist group and seemed to be at least partially focused on telling the world that the Jews do not have as much karma as everyone else for some reason and should therefore be watched out for. It's a really bizarre subject matter and very much worth your time. And even more bizarre is how much of the modern 20th century racial theory espoused by white supremacists, from the Nazis to the neo-Nazis and other offshoot groups, are predicated on this one cult's fever dream-inspired ideas about race and humanity. Regardless of the source, though, the concept of Aryan has allowed many leaders and groups to segment the population, to create an us and a them, where perceptually no us and them existed before. And though definitely not used in the same often horrible way, brands make use of a similar tactic. They utilize data to figure out how people are organizing themselves and then label these groups so as to more easily market to them. Or in some cases, they create the groups out of whole cloth Brand new groups deciding that skaters are now a thing, or hipsters encompass this specific set of traits, or young professionals with a capital Y and a capital P value X, Y, and Z. Let's figure out how to sell those things to them. By helping people self-define in this way, by giving us labels in which we can cloak ourselves, 
these brands benefit from our tendency to ignore the label traits that don't apply to us and embrace those that do. We begin to use their terms, their categorization methods, and in turn may even adjust our habits, including, importantly, our buying habits, to reflect those new categories, including purchasing the products we are told that people like us, people who wear the same labels as us, who fit into these neat categories, are supposed to own and consume. The organizational terms that we use are important because they shape the way that we see ourselves, the way that we see the world, and the way that we interact with the world and everyone else in it, within our own group and those in other groups. Our tendency to adopt labels and to want to label everything, including ourselves, is not inherently negative or positive, but it can be, and it has been, used in both ways, with varying degrees of success, by demagogues and soft drink brands, and even trend-setting Instagram influencers over the span of human history. These terms, especially when spread far and wide, come to shape our perception of trends, of fashion, of political movements, of products and services, and of history and current events. There are a lot of forces out there, businesses, political parties, governments, and forecasters, who benefit in many ways from us towing the line and being well-defined, lockstep walking members of whichever group or groups we are sorted into, whether or not those labels actually apply to us in any real way. Recognizing these labels as the generalizations that they are, though, rather than as destiny or as firm guidelines to which we must adhere, can help us gain the benefits, the broad if incomplete understanding that they can help us quickly achieve, and which hopefully encourage us to dig deeper to understand the world more thoroughly without also succumbing to the many downsides that are possible as a consequence of this categorization. The book that I'd like to recommend today is actually an audiobook. I've been listening to it as an audiobook anyway. It's actually a collection of lectures from the Great Courses series. So you can get it from the Great Courses or you can get it from Amazon. It might also be available elsewhere if you look around. But it's entitled The Other Side of History by Dr. Robert Garland. And the concept of this lecture series appealed to me as soon as I heard about it. It's basically a collection of lectures about not famous, not wealthy, non conquering hero people throughout history, which is a pretty wild idea because if you think about it, a lot of what we learn about, or at least a lot of what I learned about, especially in history classes throughout my educational career, but also in the books that we read later on, they tend to focus on famous personalities, people who made history in one way or another through inventions or military victories or business savvy political careers, people who did stuff, right? This is a book about people who did not do stuff, or rather they did not do things that are commemorated in history books, in documents, but they lived life, they existed, and they had children in a lot of cases, so a lot of us are descended from this type of person. We are not all descended from heroes and kings, we are descended from these people who lived on the other side of history. And so what this series is about is what everyday life was like in a bunch of different cultures 
the ancient Greeks, ancient Egyptians. Actually, that piece in this episode about Egypt was inspired by this lecture series discussing what these people ate, what kind of work they did, how they spent their time, what relationships were like, where their traditions, some of which still exist today, stemmed from initially, the circumstances in which they lived, their environments. So it's all very fascinating. Whether you're already a history buff and this kind of stuff just appeals to you automatically, or if you're somebody who's just looking to fill in that particular gap in your historical education. Because a lot of us already have a very baseline historical education in terms of wars fought and kings who ruled this country and that country, inventions that led to this revolution, and so on. But if you are keen to learn about the everyday person who lived in these places at these times and how their lives might have differed from your own, this is a really great series. It's actually incredibly well presented as well. I actually binge listened to this particular series. And the lecturer just has an amazing intonation. The language that he uses is incredible and keeps you engrossed. So it's very well presented in addition to being very interesting information. Again, that's The Other Side of History by Dr. Robert Garland. And that is a Great Courses series collection. If you'd like to find out more about me and my work, you can pop on over to colin.io. You will also find a complete list of the books that I've written there. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of this podcast at letsnotethings.com. Feel free to reach out and say hello on social media. I am at Colin is my name on all the usual suspects, the Instagrams and Twitters and YouTubes of the world. Thank you so much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.